0: welcome back to mama mystery i am your host kelly and
1: i am your co-host austin
0: and today we are celebrating with our 100th episode of mama mystery we're doing a live stream so a lot of you are watching it live right now uh we're, and then those of you who are listening to us this is, this is legit. This is the actual version. You're watching us record this episode that will be live on Spotify and Apple by it's, the end of the night.
1: So we're live, if you didn't catch that.
0: You know what's funny? I, I think it's like so much cooler than it probably actually is, because I think, man, there's so many podcasts. Just hold on.
1: You you're, do dog yourself. No,
0: no, no. I, I, I'm laughing at myself, because I'm thinking... Podcasts do this all the time. Like doesn't matter. Of, I know, but to me, this is a big deal. It's a big
1: deal. It all is right. a big deal. This is Mama Mystery one hundred. Yeah. When did you start this? Give a little backstory before we just dive in. When did you start Mama Mystery? Why? How long have you been a freaking weirdo that's obsessed with true crime? Oh, forever.
0: So I've been a weirdo forever. I remember watching Autopsy on HBO like when my parents weren't around. Um, she's a very a freaky girl <laughs> not a show a child should be watching Unsolved Mysteries like
1: oh I watched Unsolved that's crazy because I don't like true crime but I remember watching Unsolved Mysteries during the summer I would watch yeah. Unsolved Mysteries and TRL
0: Yeah, or Tales from the Crypt. That's how I got my very first nightmare. I'll never forget it. My first nightmare was that skeleton from Tales from the Crypt, and he, like, popped my head off in my nightmare. I'll never forget it. I was probably, like, five.
1: I remember watching MTV Pimp My Ride also
0: that summer. That show was dumb.
1: It was dumb. They would take, like, somebody, and they'd be like, and we know you like fruit, so we put a juicer in the back of your Camry.
0: Yeah, and a live orange tree. With shag
1: rug. Like, it was the stupidest shit ever. Just buy him a new car.
0: Yeah, insane.
1: That's a weird show.
0: So anyway, I've liked true crime since I was very young. And then COVID happened. I couldn't do my normal work, which was hair. I was a hair stylist. I still kind of am. If you were Nancy
1: Pelosi, you could get your hair done, though.
0: Different episode for a different day. Listen, here's the deal, though.
1: Here's what (laughs) I figured out. I've never, ever, like people can be on both sides, political, whatever. I've never met anybody who likes Nancy Pelosi.
0: That's, that's. I'm serious probably I've true. never met anybody. Yeah. And I
1: think the one person out of like the 150 plus votes that did it on my story, I think they bumped it.
0: Yeah. I think that was an accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I had to find something to do with my time when COVID happened and, I think it was you that suggested I do, like, the YouTube channel.
1: No, you started as YouTube. Oh, and you then you... were like, you... check this out. And then I was... You were stressing all the time because you were like, I can't get on YouTube looking rag, ragged or whatever.
0: Yeah, and now I can do podcast ragged because nobody has to see yeah, my face. So like, I, said, well, I actually do... did this today just because we're doing this, but normally my hair is up in a bun and I have no makeup on.
1: But I said, hey, do it's a... It's so nice. I said, do a podcast. And you were like, okay. And you, yeah. you turned your videos into a podcast.
0: Yeah, so those first few episodes were a little rough. But we've come so far. I can't believe it's been, like, almost two years now.
1: Yeah, but I would literally go on... I mean, I
0: got pregnant and had a baby since we started this show. A lot of you guys have been listening since day one, and you've been with us this entire time which i think cool. is really cool you're like
1: growing with us our yeah. life but we, yeah i remember i would go for walks and i would listen to them but i always had it on youtube and i had it in my pocket because i'm walking and i was like i'm all i'm listening to is the audio just do audio mm-hmm. so it was yeah. a lot easier
0: i'm glad i did because this has been way it's easier been fun
1: and now we're at episode 100 it's fastest growing true true crime podcast out there and you're a badass
0: thank you you're fun too people like of, you i'm proud they of love you. you thank you very proud of you Thank you. Okay. Okay, so um, before we get started, I have a couple things I want to shout out real quick. We have some new Patreons, so let's go ahead and shout them out. You ready? Hannah Jundi. Yeah. Roxanna White, which I went to school with her. Hi, Roxanne. Hi, Roxana. Is Roxanna. it Roxanna or Roxanne? Mm.
1: You went to school with her.
0: Well, I'm used to... I actually know her as Roxy. We always called her Roxy in school. Well,
1: shout out to Roxy.
0: Hey, Roxy. So, hey, Sarah.
1: Ro- hey, Roxy.
0: Sarah Burgess, Queen Bee.
1: Whoa. Very cool. Mm-hmm.
0: And Maddie Danbury. Heck yeah. Yeah. We have a new website. So, uh, mommamystery.com got a little bit of a facelift yesterday. And so, if you want to go on there to request an episode, you still can, and then we also have some fun merchandise. So, Which
1: would be really cool if we had the spooky sweatshirt right here to show them, but we don't, but yeah.
0: Yeah, but um well, a lot of the t-shirts are pre order so I don't even have them right now to wear one, otherwise I would be wearing one, but they're on the website and they're super cute, perfect in time for Halloween, so go check it out. All right, so today we are talking about infamous John Wayne Gacy. Mm-hmm. So I have to admit, I know you don't know anything about John Wayne Gacy. Not true. What do you know? What did you know about him?
1: I know his name. I've seen you watching his stuff on TV constantly over the last couple of weeks, and I know his name. Because
0: <laughs> I was researching I thought it was Gacy. Gaeth- the... No, it's Gacy.
1: Really? Yeah, sure Well, I know is. I've seen his name.
0: Okay. So anyway, uh, like I said, I knew you wouldn't know anything about him, but I actually didn't know anything about him either. This has been a highly requested case. Hold
1: on. Meet the Parents. Oh, oh, what's that? What's that? You don't know shit about flowers? (laughs) (laughs) The Jerusalem tulipazizi what? Oh, oh, you don't know shit.
0: Yeah.
1: Meet the Parents. That's a a classic. It's
0: a good movie. Another movie quote. We do that a lot. We do that a lot. But, um, yeah, John Wayne Gacy, he's been recommended many times, but I have never really known who he was other than the fact that he was, like, the creepy clown guy. So, now that I know, I'm going to share... My knowledge with you, Austin. I can't wait. And our listeners.
1: Fan- sounds fantastic.
0: A so clown. Let's, let's do this. All right. So John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17th of 1942 in Chicago, Illinois, to John Stanley Gacy and his wife, Marion Elaine Robison. His father worked as a mechanic and his mother was a homemaker. He grew up with two sisters and his childhood was pretty rough. His family was strictly Catholic and his dad was a very abusive alcoholic who never missed an opportunity to tell John that he was dumb, stupid, not as good as his sisters. And here's the thing, before I go on, I want to acknowledge, and I've said this before, but it's worth saying again, when I talk about... A serial killer's rough childhood I don't say it so that you have Empathy for the serial killer That we're going to be discussing But I do think it's important to note That a lot of bad people Are bad because of their upbringing So it's just something Worth noting Be a good parent (laughs) So you don't end up with a Casey
1: Weird, but parenting is important
0: Yeah, who knew? So anyway during one outburst, John's father snapped at John for misassembling a car engine that he was helping him with, and he beat him with a leather belt so mercilessly that his mom stepped in and tried to shield him from the lashes. And this only angered his father more, prompting him to call him a sissy, a mama's boy, and that he would, quote, probably grow up to be queer, end quote.
1: Sounds like a complete douchebag. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, not a great guy. This shame that his father bestowed onto his only son made John understandably fearful of his father. So when John was molested by a family friend, he was too afraid to tell his dad for fear of being blamed and then probably ridiculed too for the assault. John's friends were witnesses to this abuse as well, and they would recall many times that John's father would beat him without even having a reason, that he would just drunkenly surface from the basement and begin hitting John, although John would never fight back. Multiple times throughout his school years, John would be hospitalized for a heart condition. So I guess one day he was playing outside during recess and he went to grab one of the swings. And at this time, the swings were wooden seats with metal chains. And when he grabbed the chain, the wooden seat whipped around and hit him so hard in the forehead, it knocked him out. And from then on he would just black out at school without any provocation. And although his condition was never specifically diagnosed, his friends, mother, and sister sisters wholeheartedly believed John had a serious medical condition while his father openly suspected that he was just faking it to gain sympathy and attention and to get out of being active.
1: If you're watching it live, you'll see that a lot of times I'm sitting here quiet, just shaking my head because it's ridiculous. It's like... Yeah. It's just, like, disappointing to hear that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. I think it was really common then, and I think it's still common to this day, which is really sad. So by the time John became an adult, he developed an interest in politics. And he admits that part of the reason he became interested in politics is because he was searching for validation from others that he couldn't get from his own father. But after a heated altercation with his father, John took off and headed to Las Vegas where he found a job working for a funeral home as a mortuary attendant. Without a place to stay, he slept on a cot behind the embalming room for three months. But then one night, he snuck into the room where a deceased teenage boy was being held and John snuck into the boy's coffin and started caressing him before snapping back to reality and jumping out of the coffin. So I've heard this story told multiple times, and then I also saw John in an interview deny this story. But as we go on, we will find that John isn't really the most truthful storyteller. So you choose what to believe. So anyway, he jumps out of the coffin. He immediately calls his mom and asked if he could come back home, to which his mom and dad both agreed. So he left Vegas and went back to Chicago. So John found work in Springfield, Illinois, working as a... Springfield,
1: Illinois, real quick, is where my fake ID was from. (laughs) When I turned 17, I had a fake ID that said I was from Springfield, Illinois, and I was 21. I wish I could tell you the zip code and everything, but I knew all about Springfield, Illinois. I knew the county it was in, neighboring <laughs> cities, everything.
0: Because you were afraid they were going to quiz you or what?
1: Because people would quiz you, yeah. They'd be like, oh, or you'd give it to somebody and they'd be like, oh, I'm from Springfield, Illinois. And I'd be like, shit, you know that local pub? <laughs> like You know what I mean? Like I knew like all kinds of shit yeah. about Springfield, Illinois.
0: You know what else is funny? Hmm. When I was in college, I had a fake ID also. And, um if you can't really tell, I am 5'9", okay, blonde hair, obviously, and uh, when I had a fake ID, it was of a red-headed girl who was 5'2", and I never got questioned.
1: Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs>
0: So, John found work in Illinois, working as a shoe salesman, and that is where he met his girlfriend, Marilyn Myers. In 1964, they became engaged, and John got a promotion to work for the United States Junior Chamber, otherwise known as the Jaycees. So, John and Marilyn married in September of 1964, and they moved to Waterloo, Iowa. Marilyn's family lived in Waterloo and her father had recently purchased three KFC restaurants and he wanted John to manage them. So they were offered a home to live in, a hefty salary of $15,000 a year, which in 2022 would be around $135,000 a year, plus a share of the profits from the restaurants. So it's a pretty good gig. yeah. Yeah. So while he managed the restaurants, he became very friendly with his employees, often inviting them to his house to hang out and drink. He'd get really flirtatious with the male employees especially, and once he felt like he filled them with enough liquor, he would start making advances towards them. And if they were put off by that, he would just say that he was joking or that he was just testing their morals. So John and his wife had two kids together, a boy and a girl, back to back. And when his parents came up for a visit, he finally got an apology from his father for the way that he treated him as a child. But at this point, John was already 30 years old, and an apology wasn't about to just undo all that damage over the course of two or three decades. Mm -hmm. So while living in Waterloo, John joined their chapter of J.C.'s. And John quickly worked his way up to serve on their board of directors. In 1967, he was awarded with Outstanding Vice President, but what on the outside appeared to be this strong brotherhood hit a lifestyle among the JCS of wife-swapping, drug use, pornography, and prostitution. It's
1: partying like it's 1967.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Free love, baby. And in August of sixty-seven, he lured the son of one of his fellow JCs to his house under the pretense that he was going to show him a stag video or like a naughty video. That you they, say stag? Yeah, they called him Stag Films. Never heard of it. Um, so. Anyway, he promised the boy he was going to show them this video that they would watch at JC events sometimes. And the boy was only 15 years old. So when brought John brought him to his house, he pumped him full of alcohol and convinced him that he had to have sex with men before he could have sex with women. This was a What kind
1: of 15-year-old believes that?
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know. I know. It's hard to put yourself in the position of a 15-year-old boy in a predicament like that. He's under the influence. He's with this, like, high-powered JC that has a close contact with his dad. I mean, he's probably pretty intimidated. mm mm-hmm. Interesting. And this was a regular tactic of John's, persuading boys to engage in oral sex under the pretense that it wasn't homosexual activity, but that it served a purpose for something else. For example, he also told boys that... He was only doing this for a science experiment and gave them $50 in return for their cooperation. But in 1968, the son of that fellow JC member that we just talked about told his father what was going on and he ended up going to the police. So John was arrested and charged with sodomy on the 15-year-old and he was also charged with the attempted assault of another 16-year-old boy, Edward Lynch. So John strongly denied these accusations, telling people that these were just dirty political moves. And some of his fellow JC members actually believed him. So before his trial started, in an effort to intimidate the 15-year-old victim, John paid another teenager, Russell Schroeder, to attack the boy and convince him not to testify. So Russell lured him to a park, maced him, and then beat him. But the boy survived and recognized his attacker, so he turned him in, too. When Russell was arrested, he ended up admitting that John paid him to do this. So John was arrested for that assault and was forced to undergo a clinical evaluation. And this is the first time doctors actually diagnosed John with antisocial personality personality disorder, otherwise known as a sociopath. So that's in 1968, like late 60s, that Doctors are recognizing this guy is not right. He's developing a criminal record. He's got sodomy charges. Yes, but you also have to remember this is in the state of Iowa, and that's going to come into play later. So John pleaded guilty during the trial and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And while he was in prison, his wife divorced him and won sole custody of their two children. So she ended up taking them somewhere safe, and he never saw any of them again. Thank God. And during his term in prison, he found another JC chapter within the prison. So within a year and a half, he took this membership from only 50 members to a whopping 650 members.
1: All in the prison?
0: All in the prison. He was able to increase the pay for the inmates who worked in the mess hall. And he was instrumental in installing a miniature golf course in the rec yard of a prison.
1: I don't understand any of this.
0: Yes. So what always amazes me about sociopaths is their capacity to do such big things, right? And yet use that gift for something so evil. So in the case of John Wayne Gacy, he was a very likable guy. People trusted him. He was just this guy next door and we'll get into more of this, but it just amazes me how somebody can be so manipulative and like just have a complete mask and hide so much about their life. It, I have an it's just uncle, It blows my mind.
1: I have an uncle that's a sociopath and he sent me an email one time and told me that I don't talk to this guy. Okay. And he sent me an email one time and he told me that if my, my brains were as big as my muscles, I would be marginally retarded at best. He has a lot of issues.
0: He has a lot of issues. And I'm not laughing at the context well, not just the context of the email book. We but don't just have to be
1: bubble wrap and say like sorry for saying the R word. It's not like we say that we the same. That's what he said the one to that me. Said it, but he's a loon.
0: Yeah, he's he's got some very serious issues. He walks around
1: like a penguin. Keep <laughs> going. I don't talk to him.
0: We don't talk about him. We cool. won't even say his name. So Not even my
1: uncle.
0: Back to John. He's my cousin's uncle. Back to John. (laughs) While John was in prison, his father passed away from cirrhosis of the liver. And that was really devastating. Um, A lot of people close to this story will sometimes bubble wrap it and say it was heart failure. But um, some of his closer family actually admit it was cirrhosis of the liver. Very real thing. So this devastated john and he had to miss the funeral because he was incarcerated he had requested to get like a furlough to attend the the funeral but it was denied and then 6 months later in june of 1970 he was finally released on probation after serving only 18 months of his 10 year sentence and as part of his probation he was ordered to stay in chicago and obey a 10pm curfew while he lived with his mom so he found a job working for a fast food restaurant as a cook which was quite the step down from once managing three KFCs and making this huge salary. You have this home paid for. Like, you had this dream life, and now you're alone living with your mom and working at a fast food restaurant. I mean, it just, like... And it's not to say that fast food restaurants are low or whatever. It's just quite a step down from what his life used to be.
1: Congratulations John. You blew it.
0: You blew it. So on February 12th of 1971, a teenage boy accused John of assaulting him at a Greyhound bus station and luring him to his home where he forced the boy to have sex with him. But John denied this and when it came time to go in front of a judge, the boy did not show up to court. So the Case was dismissed. The Iowa Board of Parole never heard about these incidents because they happened in Illinois. So, even though these charges would have been parole violations, they never knew about it. So, his parole effectively ended in October of 1971 and then his criminal convictions were sealed. This is a monumental moment, Austin, because Had the Iowa Parole Board learned of his conduct in Illinois, he probably would have been locked up, and it could have saved a lot of people from a lot of misery that he would go on to cause. So in July of 1972, John Wayne Gacy married his second wife, a girl he'd actually dated during high school. Her name was Carol Hoff. She had two daughters from a previous marriage, so they all moved into a ranch house in Cook County, which was a metropolitan within Chicago. I don't even know how this
1: dude is landing chicks to marry
0: you know i wonder too yeah i wonder too yeah he uh, wasn't he's got to be living like a complete guy. double life i think he just had to have been that charismatic like i don't know yeah. but you know i usually i feel like <laughs> I get, like, red flags or weird gut instincts about people sometimes. How did he not throw off red flags to people? Like, how did nobody know what type of guy he really was? I don't know. I just don't know. So, Mm -hmm. anyway, he marries uh, Carol Hoff. And it was also around this time that John started his own contracting business called PDM, which stood for Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance. He would work as a contractor at night after his shifts as a line cook, and by 1973, he was able to quit his job as a cook and work as a contractor full-time. So it's like we've kind of come full circle and escaped the graveyard at this point. He became so busy managing PDM that he was often working 16-hour days. Where are you going?
1: I'm
0: just looking at the video. Oh. (laughs) Um, so he was often working 16 hour days, traveling out of state. This among other things had an effect on his marriage to Carol. And by 1975, he finally admitted to Carol that he was bisexual. And on mother's day of 1975, he and Carol had a romantic evening. And then that same night he told her that that was the last time they would ever be having sex. He started working even more, and Carol began to notice John bringing young boys into their garage. And she said it would often be like Grand Central Station with guys coming in and out at odd hours of the night. And as time passed and their marriage crumbled, she became more desperate for some truth. So she began looking around his garage, and that is when she found a stash of gay pornography and a collection of men's wallets with their IDs still inside. Mm so at this point John is not just bisexual he is gay and he's clearly refusing to accept this because he has an obsession with gay pornography but he's not he's keeping it a secret so Carol asked for a divorce and she and her daughters found their own apartment and they're like "Sia, we're not doing this so later that year John discovered a club called the Jolly Jokers what do you think that club is for?
1: Uh, Probably gay stuff.
0: (laughs) Stan! What?
1: I'm just guessing the dude.
0: Okay, I guess that's fair. What would I have guessed? The Jolly Jokers? It's a clown club.
1: Why would I have ever guessed that? You just came off talking about the gay stuff he does. I figured they go in there and jerk each other off. I don't know. <laughs> the what the hell would Jerker. anybody else have guessed? The Jolly Jokers. Oh, I'll bet it was a clown club.
0: This is going terrible. <laughs> no, it's not. What
1: <laughs> return oh, to God. the go.
0: Jolly jokers. Okay, members of this. Oh, club. Kelly, I'll
1: bet it was a clown club. Where the hell would I have known what a clown club is?
0: Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I you, teed, have asked you, you teed me up. Like. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. So Jolly Jokers, members of this club would dress up as clowns, Austin. They're I'm Jolly Jokers. I'm sure everybody Jokers.
1: knows. Yeah, I'm sure everybody knows about the local clown club.
0: Anyway, they would 70s, perform at various weird. events. And so John joined this club and created two characters. Pogo the Clown was his happy clown, but Patches the Clown was more serious. He would perform at children's hospitals, Listen to that. Children's hospitals, Austin, charitable functions, political events, and local parties. John became so enamored with clowns and at one point admitted that clowns allowed him to regress back to his childhood. Why would you want to go back to a childhood that was so awful, though? I don't know. But I guess this brought out the kid in him. Even his home, Austin, had a lot of clown decorations, like from statues on end tables to paintings of clowns on the wall. I'm not a huge fan of clowns, and I certainly don't understand how people have clown art. And if you have clown art, sorry, I don't get it.
1: Why would you apologize?
0: Because <laughs> I'm not trying to offend anybody, but we're, we're clearly past that.
1: Yeah, shipped on sale. If you don't like it, you're probably not listening at this point.
0: Fair. So anyway, his friends never found it as odd, though, apparently. In fact, he was very well regarded in his community as the Democratic precinct captain who often hosted parties at his house, and these parties would have hundreds of people in attendance. He even helped organize a political parade where he was photographed with the first lady of the United States at the time, Rosalind Carter. See, that's
1: what I'm so confused about when you get these freaking true crime people that are murdering people and serial killers and doing all this crazy stuff and they like have influence mm-hmm. like the one you did a while back that was the stupidest episode you've ever recorded I uh, ever had to sit through was the one of that lady who was who she Amy made up Carlson. her own religion that yeah. was the dumbest episode ever
0: Amy Carlson with love has one.
1: yeah she smiled. created a religion and had thousands of people all over the place buying into this religion
0: yeah I don't know I don't know. It blows my mind, too, and I think that's why John Wayne Gacy is such a prolific, notorious serial killer is because he really slipped through a lot of the cracks. He seemed like a very normal person, well-regarded, was around kids, volunteering at children's hospitals. What? Being photographed with the president's wife? Are you kidding?
1: all the backstory of everything, like, some of the things you, you read these stories, like, this would have never happened in today's world. And what I mean by that is not that bad stuff doesn't happen, but this guy's face would have been plastered all over everything for the sodomy charges mm-hmm. and all the stuff. It would have been everywhere. And I don't I, I don't I, have a hard time thinking that he really would have had all this influence still when he would have clearly been a not good person.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that makes sense. Well, and I think at the time, like as we discussed earlier, there wasn't correspondence obviously between Iowa and Illinois. Now we have these databases where you can't go from state to state if you have
1: mm-hmm. these
0: issues, right? Or like you know, like back then on they couldn't record. call
1: over to the next state over and talk to them.
0: Right. Yeah. So it's crazy. Anyway, all of this, the clown behavior, his close proximity to children, all his well-liked good guy persona made the truth about John Wayne Gacy that much more shocking as that good guy persona was just a facade for something far more sinister. So... On December 11th of 1978, John Gacy went into Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines, Illinois to meet with the owner about some possible remodeling for the store. One of the store employees was a young 15-year-old boy named Robert Peast. Robert overheard the conversation between John and the store owner, and John told Robert that if he worked for PDM, he could make double what he was making at the pharmacy. So they got to talking about the details of the job and John told him to come to his house to discuss his employment. John treated his house like his office and it wasn't that unusual for John to host a lot of his business meetings there. So around 9 p.m. Robert Robert's shift was over and his mom arrived to pick him up. It was her birthday and they were going to go to dinner to celebrate. So Robert runs out to her car and tells his mom to give him a minute so she can go talk to this contractor about a job. And he promised he would be right back. Hours went by, there was no sign of Robert. His mom grew worried and wasted no time filing a police report. She told police that the last thing Robert said was that he was going to see a contractor about a job, but she didn't know the guy's name. The store owner, however, did, and he told them that it was John Gacy with PDM Contracting. So investigators look him up and find that he has a record with an outstanding battery charge in Chicago, and they also see that he served a prison sentence for sodomizing a young boy in Iowa, and red flags just start going up. Finally, police go to John's house to ask him about Robert, and John denies ever talking to Robert or offering him any kind of job, but they could tell John was really aggravated by their presence, and John claimed that he had just found out his uncle died. So... Here's the police at his door pressuring him about some kid he has, he claims to have no idea about. And John tells him, quote, you guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? End quote. They tell John, they just want to ask him questions. And John is like, I'm not doing this right now. I have family matters to attend to. I'll come to the station when I have time. Let me call you, basically. So later that night, around 3.20 in the morning, John shows up at the police station and he's covered in mud. He told police he was in a car accident on his way there, and they start asking him about Robert, and John repeats that he did not offer him a job, and that the only reason he came back to the store that night was because the owner told him he left his appointment book there. But the owner denied this, so John's story is not really adding up. And while John is at the station, police are trying to get a search warrant so that they can search his home in hopes of finding Robert there alive. So once they're able to get this search warrant, they hurry over to his house at 8213 Somerdale, but they're disappointed to find nothing, really. I guess not nothing. They find some pretty weird stuff like gay pornography books hidden in the the attic and 18-inch long sex toy. Several, eighteen inches. Yeah, I you know I was gonna say extra long, but I didn't think that did it justice. It's eighteen inches long. That that could kill somebody. Jeez,
1: Christmas.
0: Yes. So anyway, there were also several police badges, bottles of Valium and atropine, which atropine slows your heart rate. There was a class ring with the initials J-A-S and a few men's wallets with their driver's license.
1: See, another weird-ass thing about these weirdos. Yeah. They, they take, trophies. They keep things from their victims. Yeah. So strange. Yeah, they do. They're just freaks all around.
0: Yeah, that's a common thing amongst serial killers. That. To keep a little piece as like a memento. Yeah. Weird. And then there was a photo receipt in the trash can. And this photo receipt is important because back in the day when you took your rolls of film to be developed, they would put your photos in an envelope and then they'd rip off the tab at the top and hand it to you so that the numbers would correlate and you'd pick up your pictures when they were ready. So this receipt was from Nissan Pharmacy. And they happened to find it in John's kitchen trash can. And they kept it so they could figure out who it actually belonged to.
1: I have something to tell you that's kind of irrelevant to this, but it's interesting. It's about people keeping mementos. Oh, okay. Okay. Magic Johnson, mm-hmm. before he got HIV, it was reported that he was having sex with three to 500 women a year. Okay. A
0: year? That's like at least two a day. A year. In well, most days. And, and, that's and, crazy. And
1: he... Uh, There's a rumor, I don't know if it's true, and if, Magic, you listen to this, don't come at us about it. There's a rumor that he used to keep panties from all the girls he could. It's a lot of panties. That's gross. It's interesting. Not relevant, but it's interesting.
0: It's not not relevant. It's interesting, but it's not relevant. What movie? Trainwreck. Yep. Um, Okay, so... Anyway, they find this receipt, okay? This receipt was from Nissan Pharmacy, and they happened to find it in John's kitchen trash can, and they kept it so that they could figure out who it belonged to. And they later find out that it belonged to a girl named Kimberly Byers. So Kim was at the Nissan Pharmacy the day that Rob went missing. And she's friends with Rob. She stepped outside for a smoke break and asked if she could wear Rob's coat since it was freezing outside. So while she was in his coat, she put that receipt tab in the coat pocket and then forgot about it before she gave the coat back to Rob. So this proves that at some point the coat and Robert Peast had to be in John's house the night he went missing for that photo receipt to end up in his trash can.
1: Damn, how did they put all that together?
0: I just told you.
1: No. I get I get the receipt and the story and all that. I'm saying how, like how did they figure all that out?
0: Because they kept it and they went back to Nissan pharmacy and they were like, "Hey, can I see your records of, you know, this got receipt it. number?" I
1: was looking at the comments. I understand.
0: Oh, okay, anyway. So, in the house.
1: I just told you. <laughs> I got lots of distractions. We're live.
0: So in the house, they also find a crawl space leading to the basement, and there's a sump pump down there that's just constantly running. But they don't go into the crawl space. They just kind of glance over it. They don't see anything. They move on. Sketchy. They didn't find Robert Peest, so they left, feeling a bit defeated, but there's this pit in their stomachs like they're on to something. They just don't know exactly what it is yet. So then police decide to run a 24-7 surveillance on John, and John was aware of this. So a team of two police officers would take 12-hour shifts and they would sit outside his house and follow him wherever he went. John would even toy with them a little bit, telling them where he planned on going, but driving erratically so they had a hard time keeping up. At one point, John went to a bar. So the officers went in with him and sat at a table nearby. So John bought them beers, and then they returned the favor. Can you imagine, like, you're being surveilled by police, and you're arrogant enough to be like, hey, guys, I'm heading over this way. You just want to follow me there? I'll buy you a couple beers. Like,
1: wow. And then the police are buying him beers back.
0: I think just in an attempt to be like, we see what you're doing here. (laughs) Like, just to be like, I don't know, two can play that game, kind of. Okay, anyways... (laughs) So on December 15th, investigators got more details on that battery charge over in Chicago. So a man named Jeffrey Rignall had barely survived an attack from John, and he claimed that John lured him into his car and put a rag over his face soaked with chloroform. He said he passed out, and John raped him, tortured him, and then when he would regain consciousness, John would replace the rag over his face, which resulted in severe chemical burns all over his face. And then he said John dumped him on the side of the road, likely leaving him for dead, but he survived. And that same day, December 15th, they realized one of the IDs found at John's house had the same initials as that class ring, J-A-S, And it was John Allen Zick. And when they search John's name, they find that he is listed as a missing person. So they contact his mom and she tells him that he went missing on January 20th of 1977 when he failed to show up for work. And his mom noted that a few of his things were missing too, like a radio and a Motorola TV and his white Pontiac. So meanwhile, police are working hard to gather enough evidence to request a second search warrant now. They're looking for probable cause, and they find it one night when John allows investigators into his house. So it's December 19th now. Surveillance is still being conducted on John, and even though John is growing aggravated with this constant surveillance, he's even threatening to sue the police department for harassment over the constant surveillance, okay? But on this night, he allows the officers to come into his home. So I guess sometimes the weather would get really cold and he would let them come inside to warm up or use the bathroom because he's just a nice guy, right? Well, on this night, Officer Robinson is distracting John with conversation while the other officer, Officer Schultz, makes an attempt to kind of look around and see if he can find something that sticks out. In one of the bedrooms, he notices a TV, a Motorola TV the same TV that John Zick's mom said was missing from his room. And he's trying to get the serial number from it, but for some reason he wasn't able to get it. So he goes to the bathroom, uses the bathroom, he starts washing his hands, and just as he's washing his hands, the heat kicks on from the radiator that's in the basement. And as the bathroom slowly begins to fill with warm air, so it does with the putrid smell of human decomposition.
1: I knew he was in the crawlspace. You did a little foreshadowing earlier. I see what you did.
0: A smell that police officers are commonly all too familiar with. So investigators take this information and work on creating a formal request for a search warrant. And while they're doing that, John must be feeling the heat because he actually goes to his attorney's office. And the minute he gets there, asks his lawyer, Sam Amoranti, Amaran- amoranti I'm not sure, for a whiskey. He asks John what's going on and John puts a copy of the Daily Herald on his desk with Rob Pease's face on the front page and he tells him, quote, the boy is dead, he's dead, he's in the river, end quote. He admitted to his lawyer that he killed not only Rob Pease's, but 30 other men.
1: Oh, I just got the goosebumps.
0: And buried the majority of them in the crawl space of his basement. I got
1: the goosebumps hardcore down my back. That's asinine.
0: And that once he started running out of room, he just started tossing them in the river. Oh, my so God. So didn't, they didn't find Robert Peest. Robert Peest was not in the crawl space. But he's admitting now to police that there's at least like 30 people down there.
1: What the hell does your attorney even... I got the goosebumps hardcore. What the hell does your attorney even say? Don't worry, we'll get you out of this. I mean...
0: Well, after confessing to his lawyer, John passes out drunk in his office. And when he wakes up, he leaves saying he has things to do. He knows the end is near. He's going to be arrested. So he goes to David Cram's house. So... David was one of John's young employees who later admitted to having a relationship with John and also admitted to digging holes in the crawl space for John when John would ask him to. Also at David's house was Mike Rossi, who did the same thing for John. These two were very close to him. So John goes to David's house and asks David to take him to a few places. One place is to meet with another one of his lawyers. Another place is the cemetery where his father is buried. And it seems clear that he might be preparing to end his own life. So police swoop in and they arrest him on a charge of possession of marijuana. So this way they can keep him safe while they execute the second search warrant. When police arrive to Gacy's house, they find that he had unplugged that sump pump that was constantly running, which caused the basement to fill with water. So they have to drain the basement and let it dry out before they can start digging. And when they do, within minutes, they discover human bone and flesh. So faced with this information, Gacy decides to confess to police in the presence of his lawyers. And he admits that he killed approximately 30 men, but he was unable to remember all of their names. And when they asked him specifically about Robert Peast, he admitted to luring him to his house with the promise of a new well-paying job. And this was something he did to lure a lot of young men to his house. This was like his MO. This is what he commonly did. Once he got Robert inside, he said he performed the handcuff trick. This was a trick he commonly used. Using his clown persona, he showed Robert how he could handcuff himself and release himself free from the cuffs like a magic trick. And when Robert... It came time for Robert to do this trick. And he was trying to show Robert how to do it, right? So he gets Robert into the cuffs. And when Robert struggled to get the f- the cuffs off... John pulls out the key from his pocket and says, the trick is you have to have the key. So then he performed his next trick, the rope trick. He tried he tied a rope around his neck, and the rope had knots on both ends that were attached to the stick, and he would twist the stick, and the rope got tighter and tighter until his victims couldn't breathe. And I don't know if you remember this. You probably don't. But in the case of Jean Benet Ramsey, this was also... um, a weapon that was used on JonBenet Ramsey, and we covered her, I don't know, months ago. I should have looked up what number that was, but it just re- I just remembered. But anyway, as he did this to Robert, and as he twisted the rope around Robert's neck, he received a phone call. So he left the room to take this phone call, and then when he came back, Robert was dead. No way. Can you imagine, like, being like, oh shit, I gotta take this call and going into the next room. And whoever's on the other line has no idea that you are in the process killing of killing somebody. That just blows my mind. Yeah, that's crazy. So he admits that he put Robert into his car and drove him to the I 55 bridge and threw him off the edge, where he also admits he tossed four other men as well. Over the next week, crime scene technicians worked tirelessly to recover the victims from John Gacy's basement. A crowd formed outside his house, and it was a circus. And I find it interesting how, as time has gone by, I feel like maybe even then, too, we were kind of desensitized to true crime. In the late 70s, people would stand outside his house as the text carried body bag after body bag out of the house, often chanting the number that they were up to. They would take pictures, smiling to show their grandkids that they were there when they were taking the bodies out of this house. And now we're in 2022 and true crime still is a bit of a spectacle with a multitude of true crime podcasts. I'm one of them and documentaries, but I think we've grown to be more respectful and considerate of these situations than people were back then. I think back then it was, I mean, I can't even imagine like being on the site of a crime scene and being like, take a picture of me real quick yeah. and just smiling and posing for it. Like I can't imagine doing that, but different time, I guess. So anyway, I think people are more interested in understanding the human psyche or learning how to stay safe and protect themselves or their families now. I think that's why it still, you know, is as popular of a genre as it was then. Mm -hmm. But anyway, during John's confession to police, he drew a diagram showing where he'd buried nearly 30 men. But when they asked him if he killed them, he changed his story to say a man named Jack Hanley did it. Well, as good of a manipulator as John Gacy was up to this point, police already knew what he was trying to do because they had recovered a book from his house and bookmarked was a page on the insanity defense. So it was clear that he was trying to set himself up for an insanity trial. He even made a comment to one of the officers that he would not be spending a day in prison for this. He had it all figured out. But what John... What genius John didn't consider was that when you use an insanity defense, you're admitting guilt and it's up to the court to then decide whether you should spend your punishment for that guilt in a mental facility or in prison. You're guilty of the crime, but are you deemed crazy or legally responsible? So, either way, he was going to be punished for this, and his days of controlling this good guy narrative were over. During his trial, only 22 of the 29 bodies recovered were identified. By this time, John's house was torn down, but they removed the entrance to the crawl space and they used it during the trial to show the jury. David Cram and Mike Rossi both testified and while they admitted to helping dig the holes and covering the stench with hundreds of pounds of lime, they denied ever knowing that there were dead bodies down there, which I call bullshit, but we're running out of time to dive into that mess. Don Voorhees was the name of the victim that we talked about earlier, the 15-year-old boy from Iowa um, who actually put him in jail for those 18 months. He testified, but his testimony was dismissed because he showed up to the trial, barely able to speak because he was so drunk. And I have to imagine that he hasn't been able to cope with what John Gacy put him through. Another survivor testified as well, Anthony Antonucci, who fought for his life when John Gacy handcuffed him, but he was able to miraculously break free And he told the jury that after he broke free of the cuffs, he used a wrestling move on John Gacy that enabled him to actually cuff Gacy. And he recalled how John said, quote, you're the only one who not only got out of the handcuffs, but got them on me, end quote.
1: So what did he do?
0: So that one actually baffles me. I wasn't going to go on because I just, it baffles me. But apparently after he got John in those handcuffs, Anthony Antonucci kind of waited, and things calmed down. He waited until John Gacy calmed down, and he let him out of the handcuffs. What? And I, I think the way it was described in his interview, it was that it was like John Gacy was these two different people. Like the second he could snap him back to reality, he felt safe enough to take the cups off, and Anthony T- Antonucci was able to leave and survived. So, I mean, it was just. I don't know how to explain that. I don't know how you explain that. So back to the trial after closing arguments, the jury only took two hours to return a verdict of guilt and they imposed the death penalty. He was set to be executed on June 2nd of 1980, but of course he tried appealing. It took him 14 years on death row to eventually exhaust all of his appeals. And his final execution date was set for May 10th of 1994. So by this time, the mode of execution had changed from what they deemed a cruel death of the electric chair to a more humane execution of the lethal lethal injection. So on the evening of May 9th, 1994, John Wayne Gacy devoured his last meal consisting of KFC fried chicken, a dozen fried shrimp, French fries, fresh strawberries, because balance... And a Diet Coke.
1: Man, can you imagine? Like, I don't feel bad for this guy, but can you imagine that choose your last meal? No. No. How could you even eat?
0: How could you eat? Right. That's what I'm
1: saying. Like, you know what? I'll take a ribeye. Like, you could order up whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I I don't even understand. It's just unfathomable. I don't feel bad for him, but...
0: No, I, I, I would be so stressed out. How are you not? I don't know. So, shortly after midnight, he was brought into the execution chamber... They placed the IV into his arm, and they began administering the drugs when the solution unexpectedly solidified, complicating the process. So officials closed the drapes to the viewing area so that spectators couldn't see what was going on. Ten minutes went by as they replaced the clogged IV with a new one, and then they opened the drapes and resumed the procedure.
1: Like, they let people watch?
0: Yeah.
1: Is this, like, a normal thing? Yes. To this day? Yes. <laughs> no way. Yes.
0: Yes. It's not just anybody. Not just anybody can sign up and watch. It's usually family or people close to the case, like victims' families. For
1: real? That would give me nightmares.
0: Yeah. So the entire execution took 18 minutes, and his last words were kiss my ass. What
1: a dirtbag. <laughs> Going out with class. Right.
0: While John Gacy was in prison, he painted a lot and he sold those paintings in an attempt to make money, but the prison refused to give him those funds, which I think is fair. I don't think he deserves anything good or decent. And after his death, an investor bought a lot of his paintings and then set them on fire. However, some of his artwork is still in circulation, and even though he still has two kids out there, they don't reap the the financial benefits— of any of the sales, because there was never a trust set up for them. But um, I don't know where where the, I mean, I, I assume it's just whoever has it and sells it, they get the money.
1: As a guy who collects shit, yes. me, it would be interesting to be like, man, that's one of that guy's paintings.
0: Fuck no.
1: But I'm just saying, interesting, I wouldn't want one. But, like, if I saw one, like, if we were walking through the Dallas True Crime podcast and somebody said, that's his painting, you don't think it'd be like, holy crap.
0: I don't know. It would yeah. be gross. Yeah,
1: but it's just, I'm saying it's, like, interesting. And
0: spin on it. I think my first instinct would be... <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, on Peacock, there, you know, the streaming service, Peacock, there's a six-part documentary series called John Gacy, Devil in Disguise, and it showcases a lot of the videotaped interviews between John Gacy and FBI profiler... Robert Ressler and after this interview Gacy gave Robert Ressler one of his paintings with a note written on the back that read quote dear Bob Ressler you cannot hope to enjoy the harvest without first laboring in the fields end quote and when Mr. Ressler asked what he meant by that Gacy said you're an investigator and an FBI profiler you figure it out Robert Peace's body was miraculously found months after his disappearance in the river where Gacy admitted to dumping his body. And although he was never found in the crawl space, it was Robert's disappearance that initiated the search that would eventually reveal all the other victims. His brother said that Robert always wanted to do something big with his life, and his family believes he did just that. If it weren't for Robert, John Gacy may have never been caught. His victims may have never been found, and he undoubtedly saved the lives of many future victims. Mm -hmm. And that part gives me chills.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um,
0: So the last thing I want to do is um, I, I want to convey the magnitude of... This story by telling you the names and ages of every single one of his victims that we know of. You'll have to remember that some of the victims weren't identified, and with the new advances in DNA technology, we're getting closer to identifying some of those victims. Um, but so far, this is what we have. So, Timothy McCoy was 16, John Butkovich was 18, Daryl Sampson, 18, Randall Reffitt, 15. Samuel Stapleton, 14. Michael Bonin, 17. William Carroll Jr., 16. James Hawkinson, 16. Rick Johnston, 17. Kenneth Parker, 16. Michael Marino, 14. William Bundy, 19. Francis Alexander, 21. Gregory Godzik, 17. John Zick, 19. John Prestige, 20. Matthew Bowman, 19. Robert Gilroy Jr., 18. John Mowry, 19. Russell Nelson, 21. Robert Winch, 16. Tommy Bowling, 20. David Talzma, 19. William Kindred, 19. Timothy O'Rourke, 20. Frank Landingen, 19. Jane Mazzara, 20. And Robert pieced 15. Gosh, that's so terrible.
1: What a lunatic.
0: Lunatic is completely appropriate. So, there you have it. That's the story. There. I mean, th- this story, the thing is, uh, this was an hour-long episode. And normally our episodes are like 30 minutes. And normally what I write is six to seven pages. This was ten pages. I could have easily kept going. I could have easily continued writing about this and finding there's so much information out there. There's so many documentaries. Um, yeah, this is a wild one. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So thank you so much for tuning in to listening for listening on Spotify and Apple. Like you are right now, or also like you're watching live on Facebook and Instagram. I appreciate you guys so much. This podcast, I cannot believe we're the hundredth episode. Like I, I don't know. I never thought we would make it this far.
1: You've done awesome. Thank you. I, I had a cool gift made for you, but it wasn't here in time.
0: Oh, darn it.
1: i would be it. really cool to like, open it and show you it. But...
0: Well, tell me what it is. Should I tell you? Yeah.
1: Then it's gonna not be a big surprise.
0: Yeah, but like I'll be surprised right now when you tell me.
1: Okay, cool. I got you. You know those track jackets that I just had made. Yeah. I got you a track jacket, and it has the MM right here. Yeah. It has this. Okay. Like, well, it has your actual Mama Mystery like cover on the back, real big.
0: Nice, yeah. babe. I can't wait. Yeah. Oh, well, so. we can wear that in Dallas. If you live in or near Dallas, come see us August twenty sixth to twenty eighth. We'll oh, be at yeah. the True Crime Podcast Festival. That's right. I'm very excited for Good that.
1: Child, babe. Thanks, babe. Episode one hundred. Mama. Mystery. Out.